Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Now, we've all been in that situation where you have a patient or their family who are keen to proceed with surgery, and you're not sure that it's in the patient's best interest. Maybe it is in their best interest, but how do we find that out? Well, in this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. N.N. Tong, who is a geriatrician with an interest in palliative care. We are talking about how to approach patients who have a condition that is amenable to surgical treatment, but then who might be very elderly, who might have metastatic cancer, or have multiple comorbidities, or various other reasons for why going ahead with surgery may not be a straightforward decision. Now, just a few things to point out. N.N. and I are discussing some patient scenarios that have been made up. They are completely fictitious. They hopefully reflect patients that we have all come across, but they are by no means based on one particular patient. We also discuss the legality of advanced care directives and also what is reportable to the coroner. Now, this will differ in different jurisdictions and potentially over time. So please do check what is relevant to your location at that time. And on that note, please remember this is a general chat about how to approach goals of care discussions. So please double check any specifics before you mention them to your patients. Towards the end of our chat, Dr. Tong shares a great framework for how to approach these discussions. So do listen out for that. All right, let's get into it. Thank you for giving up some time this afternoon to have a chat with me about goals of care because this is something that we're having to deal with more and more. Thank you. I think one of the reasons we are having to discuss it is because we are having older patients coming through for surgery. Is that what you think is one of the reasons that's driving this? So yes, definitely the population of patients that we are seeing in hospital is skewing towards those who are frailer and more multi-morbid. But I think we are also dealing with a generation that is becoming more health literate. And there's so much information on the media, not all of it is correct as well. So there's people coming with very unrealistic expectations. That's why the goals of care is very important, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah, totally agree. Let's get into some scenarios and try and make this really practical for people. Yeah. So let's say the patient who's come in with a fractured neck of femur and they were living at home, but when you talk to the family, they say that they're, it's usually their mother because fractured neck of femurs occur more commonly in women. Then they'd say actually she was struggling. She was starting to forget things. She wasn't really eating that well. They were bringing food around for her. And she's got a carer that comes in that helps with the housework. So first of all, what do we think about that level of frailty? So I think definitely it's a person who is quite vulnerable in terms of the statistics. It is possible that she is not necessarily going to be able to get home at her previous level of function. And she may end up requiring a higher level of care that could not be met in the community. But when we talk about whether or not to proceed with the surgery in fractured neck of femur, we know that if we don't proceed with surgery, it's very likely that the person will eventually die from complications of it. Therefore, there's often a push for it to be done. So I think the goals of care for that person is acknowledging that it is a risky surgery to have, bearing in mind that they may not get return to their previous functional status. 
So is that the time before the patient has surgery to have a very frank discussion with them and their family about the high likelihood of them not being able to return home to independent living, that this might be the start of them needing to think about going into a residential aged care facility or something like that? I think it depends on the situation because there is already a lot of tension prior to that. When you talk about all the risks associated with the surgery, so it may not always be appropriate. However, if the question is asked and if it seems to be relevant in the decision of whether or not to proceed, then we would raise it as one of the likely outcomes. I think where we would probably make that distinction, especially for neck or femur uh, surgery, we would only not proceed if somebody had a prognosis of less than days or even a week, in which case we'd just give them good palliative care. So just say this lady who's quite frail but living independently at home, she's got quite a number of comorbidities. So she's ischemic heart disease, she's had a past history of a myocardial infarction, she's got a pacemaker, she's got uh, New York Heart Association Class 3 heart failure, and a bit of chronic kidney disease. Would you say that she's at the stage where you would conceal a palliation? Not necessarily because while she does have multiple comorbidities, she is not necessarily entering the final month of her life unless something unexpected happens. But what those comorbidities tell us is that she is at risk of not being able to cope physiologically with all the stress associated with undergoing the surgery plus the rehabilitation process. So in a person like this, part of the focus of the goals of care, apart from establishing what the feeling of treatment should be for this person, is also preparing the family for the risk of deterioration because she may end up dying from complications either directly due to the surgery or further down the track, or she may not actually return home. So that's also part of that goals of care discussion, apart from just establishing are you for ICU or are you not for ICU. It is because I suppose the mortality rate is so high from an unfractured neck of female. So then we accept these higher post-operative and operative risks. Yeah. So high-risk patient, high-risk if you don't have the surgery. What if the patient's family come back and they say, we want everything done? What's your approach to having that discussion? So I think whenever someone comes to us and says that we want everything done, our reflex response is often thinking about it medically, where we think that everything means full resuscitation CPR. But that is not necessarily what they mean. So I think it's important to actually find out from their perspective, what is everything? Does it really mean everything, everything, including CPR, or is it everything that's appropriate for the person that they're making the decision for? Most of the time, it's actually the letter. And once you have opened up the conversation to find out more about what's important to them, you can actually complete the goals of care discussion much easier. That's a really good distinction there. So just don't assume that their definition of everything is the same as our definition of everything. Sometimes what patients might say in response to that is, I'm happy to be guided by you, doc. We don't really know the difference between all of these treatments. So how do you then answer that? When somebody says that, it actually makes things a little bit easier in a sense because the more senior clinicians would probably have 
a pretty good idea already about what the ceiling of care would be for the particular patient. I think it's still important to find out what's important to them in terms of their values for their goals of care. So somebody might say, oh, I think spending time with my family is very important. However, if I can't recognize them, then I really don't want you to keep me alive. So knowing that, even if from my opinion, if I feel that yes, resuscitation may be suitable for them, however, knowing that if they were to deteriorate and end up in a situation where the research data indicate they're probably not going to have that functional outcome that enables them to maintain that level of independence and interaction with family, you can then make that medical decision not to proceed with a certain more invasive intervention, for example, because that would be in line with what their wishes are. That's great if you can get the patients on board, isn't it? That when they say, okay, we'll accept the risks of surgery, we accept that if this patient was to deteriorate afterwards, that perhaps resuscitation would be futile, would not, or would just give them a very poor quality of life that they wouldn't be interested in. Mm. I've seen this, and maybe it's a bit when there's been disruption in the family siblings that are opposing with opposing views on what should happen to their mother or their father. And you might then have a relative saying, no, absolutely, you have to do everything. That's a bit of a tricky situation. How do you handle that one? When family conflict comes into the equation, it definitely does make things more difficult. But you kind of have to look at it from two sides. One is the medical perspective, do we think the patient is going to have a reasonable outcome from whatever level of intervention is being offered? And then if possible, trying to see it from the family side, what is the patient's actual values? Because what the family are imposing on the patient may not necessarily be what they want. And then if there is a medical treatment decision maker appointed and the patient does not have the capacity to make the decision from themselves, then the responsibility of making that decision would come down to the medical power of attorney. I think that brings us nicely into the, the third scenario where it's not a fractured neck of femur, it's some other issue that's semi-urgent. Maybe it's a biliary colic without any ascending cholangitis in a woman who's 90 mm. and it, living independently. What are some of the things that help you in that discussion? So, again, going back to what their values are, what is the impact of the condition on their quality of life? Acknowledging that with people who are more frail, these elective surgeries are really aimed at improving quality of life. And when it comes down to them weighing up the decision whether or not to proceed with the surgery, whether the benefits outweigh the risk, especially when you bring quality of life and function into it. It's quite difficult to predict who's going to do well, who's going to do better than others. But, you know, I think if somebody is still reasonably independent out in the community, we probably want to give them a good goal at maintaining that lifestyle. Whereas if it's somebody who is a bit more dependent, and who is already a little bit functionally impaired, for example, they may not do so well. So I I think that's the group in which those goals of care discussions become even more important when it comes to deciding should we proceed or not. 
That's a really interesting one. So you're actually looking at the frailty as one of the biggest indicators there. Because if you're already starting to get a little bit frail, then the risk that this would completely change your lifestyle in terms of converting you from someone who's in the community to now being in a residential aged care facility, yes. it's a huge lifestyle change. Mm, yes, Whereas yes. if you're really fighting fit 90-year-old who's got an excellent quality of life, very few comorbidities, then you might consider that, that actually this is reasonable to undertake the surgery. Yeah, especially when... You know, you look at if the person is fairly fit and out and about in the community, them needing to be hospitalized a couple of times a year for a recurrence of a problem that could potentially have been surgically managed and then potentially having longer term complications like delirium or worsening functional impairment because of that unresolved issue. I think then that becomes a bit more relevant when we are talking about should we proceed with the surgery. Yeah. Because sometimes it is like, I'm thinking of patients with biliary colic, there's a risk that they could come back with gallstone pancreatitis and that's a terrible complication and would almost have a very different outcome for them. And that's why they might be offering the surgery. And someone at the age of 90 might say, I'll take that risk. But we can't make that decision for them, clearly. Then I wanted to discuss when I was training, if you had a patient with metastatic cancer, they almost certainly never got a bed in intensive care. But I feel like there's a bit of a shift now. Say you've got someone with metastatic cancer who actually might be quite young. They've got quite a stable level of disease. It's been controlled quite well. There's all all these great chemo hormonal therapeutic agents at the moment. But they do just have a pathological fracture of their hip. And because they do have lung metastases, then you think they would benefit from an ICU or at least an HDU stay. Maybe because there's a high risk of fat embolism, maybe they would benefit from some short-term inotropes even in that perioperative period. What are we thinking about there in terms of goals of care? So I think when we are dealing with the population of patients who are receiving palliative care, when we are deciding whether or not to proceed with a fairly invasive intervention, I think The main thing that we look at at this stage is what is their clinical trajectory? What is their life expectancy? Do we predict that they are going to live long enough to experience the benefits of the surgery? And then the next question from there is where is their disease and is that going to put them at higher risk? So like the example you cited, somebody potentially has lung mets or brain mets, are they going to be able to recover like you would normally expect them to? So there may need to be specific discussions relating to their disease. But again, it is also part of that preparation for the risk of deterioration. Somebody who has metastatic cancer, like you said, usually from a medical point of view, we'd say they're probably not going to benefit as much from ICU as compared to somebody who didn't have those comorbidities. However, if we are putting them through a period of physiological stress to fix a problem, which is also providing good palliative care, providing surgery to fix an issue, I think that it is worth considering them for ICU or HDU provided the critical care teams are aware and happy to provide that level of support as well. But I think when we are having the goals of care discussion with them, again, it's preparing them for that risk of deterioration and making it quite clear to them that 
yes, we are actually going to provide you with additional support for a brief period of time. We don't need to say how long, but just say that it's a time-limited increase in the level of support that we would provide to get you through this and hopefully get you the outcome that you wish for. I think it's a good point that you don't define the time ahead Mm. because I've had patients in similar situations to that scenario I've described and they just have needed an overnight period of ventilation or inotropic support and then been discharged from ICU two or three days later. But you don't have that crystal ball. So it is a very difficult situation then when they are, say, in ICU two or three days later and they haven't improved. Mm, yes. Did you ever get involved in those conversations from there or do you leave that to the intensive care team? Well, I think if we are in that situation, I think the main people who should be involved with that conversation would be, first of all, their home team. So if it's a person with a solid organ cancer, we want the oncologist to be part of that discussion because often they would have a very close relationship with the family just for some of that continuity of care because it can be very confronting for the patient's family when such a a grave decision has to be made and it's coming from a doctor that they've never met before. Definitely involving the palliative care team as well because this is very much something that they would be very comfortable with in terms of having these difficult conversations. It does come down to, again, that preemptive preparation for the risk of deterioration. And I found in my discussions with patients who are receiving palliative care that the majority of them are actually very realistic because they do see this as an opportunity to expand their time as well as to maintain their quality of life. So many of them will often say that they are willing to accept that risk. And if the person comes back and says, actually, you know what, I've thought about it, I don't actually want to take that risk, we would still continue to provide them with the best palliative care that we can to ensure that their symptoms are controlled from whatever issue it is that we were considering surgery for. The one that comes to mind with that one is often we'll have a patient who's already got advanced care directives in place and they might say, we're not for intubation, not for resuscitation, not for defibrillation, and they do need to come for surgery. And Mm. as part of their surgery, they're going to be intubated. As part of their induction, they might have a brief period of an arrhythmia, which we think, actually, if I just gave them one defibrillation attempt, I could probably get them back from that malignant arrhythmia. How do we handle that with patients? Do we just accept their advanced care directive? That is a very tricky situation because the advanced care directive is now a legal document. So we do have to follow what the person has outlined in it, especially if they do not have the ability to advise you otherwise. I think when it comes to that type of situation, again, it's worth discussing with them that there could potentially be benefit from a temporary suspension of what they have laid out in terms of treatment limitation in order to get them through the surgery, which would then hopefully either extend their life or maintain the quality of life. Ideally, we would want to be able to have that chat with the decision maker and the patient before going ahead and overriding it because there may be some who actually say, no, I absolutely do not want any of this intervention, in which case surgery then becomes a moot point. 
I want to clarify because a lot of patients now when they're coming into hospital are having their goals of care defined early in their admission, which is fantastic. It is making life, I think, a lot easier for us as anaesthetists when we go and see them for their preoperative assessment. Is having those goals of care defined on admission the same as having an advanced care directive in place? No, because an advanced care directive is coming from the patient's perspective where they are telling us what's important to them and if they are comfortable, what medical treatments are and are not acceptable to them. The goals of care is, I see it as more of a medical handover document because it goes into the front of the file and if the patient deteriorates and the home team isn't present, that's the first thing that the responding team are going to pull out. So it's what the home team, possibly in discussion with the patient or their treatment decision maker, or looking at the advanced care plan, what they have uh, filled out in terms of what the ceiling of care is. When we are filling in the goals of care form, it's important to incorporate the elements of the advanced care directive um, into it as well. So, for example, we have the goals of care form split into sections, where the first section is for curative or restorative treatment aimed at prolonging life. The next section is for curative or restorative treatment with some limitation to treatment. The next section is for non-burdensome treatment and symptom management. And then the last section is for comfort care or terminal care. So we then look through the advanced care directive and we select which category the patient falls into. So if the person's advanced care plan says, I value my independence and I do not want to be disabled or in a vegetative state. And if this person said had a couple of uh, cardiovascular risk factors and they were to come in, say, with a massive stroke where they were partially paralyzed and they couldn't actually speak for themselves, at the time of the event, you might look at it and say, based on what they have laid out in their advanced care directive, Possibly they may not want to have full resuscitation. They might actually want to be looking at a level of treatment that's more aimed at non-burdensome treatment, especially if their chances of recovering from the stroke are quite poor. And so I suppose because the goals of care document is more, as you said, seen as a medical or treatment team handover document, there is an opportunity for that to be completed without discussion with the patient. Yes. There is, but that can come back to have consequences because some families or some patients may see it as withholding treatment, which it isn't, or be very surprised at, you know, why have you made my relative not for resuscitation? This is a big decision. You should have discussed it with me. So I think wherever possible, it's good to have that chat. And you'll find that with some of the patients who are frequently admitted to hospital, they have had that discussion many times and you you can have a fairly quick chat with them. You touch on a really good point there is that if you do have a patient who's been in hospital recently and they've had a previous goals of care document, can you just assume it's going to be the same for this admission? Not necessarily because it really depends on what they've come in with this time. And what's changed? I think if you have a young and fit person with minimal comorbidities, it's very easy because usually the default answer would be yes for full resuscitation. But when you're dealing with somebody 
who have more comorbidities, especially chronic health conditions, they are more vulnerable and more at risk of that deterioration. So you can't necessarily assume that things are the same now compared to when they were last in. Mm. Mm. And you made a very good point before about a patient or patient's family might perceive your decision on goals of care as withdrawing treatment. And I can imagine that's not often perceived very well. So when we talk about goals of care discussion, we really want to frame it in a way of what we will do rather than focusing on what we won't do. And the tricky thing is because with the advances in medical technology, we're now very good at keeping people alive following an insult that would otherwise have killed them in the past. So when we're actually talking about not making a person for full resuscitation, for example, it's because we physiologically think that from our medical training as well as from our varying levels of experience, we know that the outcomes are going to be poor and these treatments are going to cause more harm and trauma, both physically and psychologically, than good. Therefore, we would not even recommend proceeding with it. And I think that's something that we need to learn better to communicate with families who see a person not receiving CPR as that treatment being withheld. I can imagine that would be tricky. Do you get many families who might request, say, a second opinion? Yes, it does happen. And I think as medical professionals, it's important not to get defensive about it because after all, everyone is entitled to a second opinion and it can actually be quite helpful for the person as well as to maintain that therapeutic relationship. So if they want to have that second opinion, just facilitate it for them. And if your colleague then comes back with the exact same opinion, that's always a bonus that you know that you were going down the right path. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And often it is quite clear. But what are some of the things that we can offer if we're not going to offer full resuscitation or full active treatment? Yeah, the way that I would say it would be we will do what we can to make sure that your family member comes through with the best outcome possible. and. In the event uh, things don't go, as we hope, we'll make sure that they are as comfortable as possible and we'll do what we can to ensure that for how much time they have remaining, they will be able to have that quality time with friends or family, which is difficult when we're dealing with a pandemic situation. But we would always want to emphasise things that we will do rather than what we won't do. So I think it's important um, to really practice and be aware of the language that is used during these discussions because the smallest slip could have major, major implications on the conversation. So focus on all the things that we will do. Mm. And there is a lot of care that we can provide in that palliative setting. The common questions that I often get asked is, how long does the dying process take? So when we are talking about the trajectory in terms of how much life a person has, we often look at it in terms of rate of change. This is easier to predict in the patients who have cancer as opposed to those who are very frail and just very, very much in the end stage of, say, like dementia, where they can continue at a very, very low baseline for a while. So I think when that question is asked, it can actually be appropriate to refer it back to 
the person specialist because they would have seen significant numbers of patients to have a feel of what the general prognosis is. But as a general guide, we would say, look at the rate of change. So is the person changing month to month, week to week, or day to day? If they are changing and their function is deteriorating day to day, then you can usually extrapolate and say that most likely their prognosis is going to be days. We don't want to put a number on it. We would recommend giving ballpark figures like short days or short days to short weeks, maybe long months, things like that. And you often preface it by saying this is just an estimation. It may be quicker just so that they have given their family time to prepare. And also you want to say they may go on for a bit longer as well and that's a bonus. I'm happy to be wrong. So nothing's definite. But what we have found is that the closer a person is to death, the better we are at predicting how much time they have left. I think another thing to think about is if we know that it's going to be a coroner's case, for example, it's very important to actually flag that early before the person has died. The most common one we deal with would be a death as a result of an injury from a fall. So say, just so you know, it is a legal requirement that we do have to refer this case to the coroner so that they can write a report on it. This will require the police to attend your house. It's all part of the process. It's nothing to be too concerned about. But just so you're aware, this is what's going to happen. And this may delay their funeral plan, but they will do their best to expedite it so that we can have the funeral as soon as possible. So it's all about the communication and that preparation. I did not know about the fall. So you could conceivably have that patient who does have a fractured neck of femur and the decision might be to palliate them. Yes. And then this person, just by nature of their injury, would be reportable to the coroner in Victoria, possibly in other jurisdictions. Yes. That's always good to know as we wander into our preoperative assessment blindly, <laughs> not knowing why the family might be upset that particular day. Yes. Mm, yes. Oh, that's good that we came full circle on that scenario. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to add, particularly in relation to anaesthetists and how we might be involved in goals of care discussions? Mm. For anaesthetists as well, as I can imagine meeting these patients in the pre-op clinics for workup often it's you've never met them before and you're expected to have a fairly heavy discussion with a complete stranger. But I think with all goals of care discussions, it can be useful to follow a bit of a framework just so that you really get what's important. So one of the frameworks that we use is the REMAP framework, um, R-E-M-A-P, where R stands for reframing what the patient understands about their situation and you want to bring their illness, their current presentation into their bigger picture in order to then proceed with the discussion. The E stands for emotion because this is a very heavy discussion to have, especially if you are well and you're suddenly forced to confront the risk of you dying or if you are already dealing with lots of comorbidities and you are suddenly asked to confront your mortality, that this might be it. So when we are talking about emotion, we really want to name what they are experiencing 
and then understand where they are coming from. So say you sound very frustrated or you seem as though you're very worried about what's happening. Can you tell me a bit more about what's on your mind and what's causing you to feel like this? And then exploring those emotions, especially if it's relevant, because that makes the patient feel that they are heard and that you're not dismissing their concerns because you have an agenda, you have a clinic too. And then the M for the REMAP acronym is you want to map out their goals and their values. So asking them, for example, what do they want to avoid and what's important to them so that you can explore their view of medical treatments as they get sicker. There may be some people who say, I don't mind having CPR, but something that's going to be offered to me. However, if I have, say, a big stroke and I can't talk, I can't swallow, I can't recognize my family, then I don't actually want to be kept alive in that situation. So that gives you a bit of an idea about what level of disability would be acceptable to them and what level of treatment you would then offer. The A for REMAP is aligning with their goals and their values, where you then reflect everything that you've heard back to them. You may need to hypothesize what they mean because sometimes people use very general descriptions and it's good to actually drill down to get the specifics if it's appropriate. And you want to summarize what they've said so that both parties have a clear understanding of what the person is actually saying. And then that comes down to P, which is where you propose your plan which takes into account the entire conversation and it's more likely to be accepted because the person has been actively involved in that discussion. So I think it is a useful framework to have. It does take a bit of time, but it is a conversation that can provide a lot of information. It's also good for the patient because they come away with a bit of a better understanding about what is actually important to them as well. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a really good framework. So that's something we can do in the anesthetic clinic and a way of approaching this with a patient, as you've said, that we often have just met for the first time. Is there a reference or? A website that I would recommend is actually the Vital Talk website. It's based in, I think, the United States. And they've got lots of videos of sample interactions. Yeah, this is a really great resource. I'll put a link to it in the podcast. So that's the Vital Talk website. And just to recap, the remap framework, there's five elements. The first one is to talk with the patient and just put their current condition in the bigger picture. And then the next sort of three steps are more exploring with the patient. One is trying to identify their emotions and feed that back to them. Mm. That's the E. And then the M stands for mapping out their goals, Mm. what they want to avoid, what they think is really important. Mm -hmm. And then trying to synthesize all that in the A, which stands for aligning and putting forward, as you said, the hypothesis of what they think they would like to achieve. And then you're ready to talk about the plan. Yes. This is gold. Any any other tips that you <laughs> that you would like to share with anaesthetists across Australia? I guess just remembering that you know, ultimately all our care is being delivered across a continuum, where we are dealing people who are fit and well all the way through to people who have a terminal condition and are receiving palliative care, and that we shouldn't necessarily discriminate and say that they're not 
for surgical intervention on the basis of age or comorbidities or because they're receiving palliative care. Great. Love it. That's fantastic. Thank you, Anne, and thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been great chatting with you. Well, thank you, NN, for a really useful discussion about some of the things that we can consider when we're doing our preoperative assessments and having that conversation with our patients and their families about what they are hoping to achieve by having surgery. If you missed the framework, it was called REMAP, which is spelled R-E-M-A-P, and I'll put some references to it in the show notes. As NN mentioned, There are other ones out there and one of them is in one of the links. So if you are interested in finding out more, do follow those links and read up about them. Also, don't forget to claim this time as part of your continuing professional development. If you enjoy this podcast on communicating with patients and are keen to hear more tips, then I suggest you listen to episode 55, that's 5-5, where I chat with Dr. Annette Webb, who is the president of the Australian Society of Hypnosis, and Dr. James Auld who both have years of experience in hypnotherapy. In that episode, they give me some pointers on how to talk with children so that we may improve their experience of anesthesia. Also, if you're interested in improving your communication skills in general, whether it be with your patients or colleagues, then I suggest you join some of our communication and leadership workshops that are being hosted by Dr. Andrea Wozniski, who is a communication expert and coach from Toronto. These workshops are complimentary, that's right, they're free to attend, but only for ASA members. So you do have to be a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists. And the feedback we've had so far is that these workshops have been fabulous. All right, I hope you found this conversation useful. I hope to see you at some of the workshops. And as always, I hope you're staying safe and well out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes, and of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.